Open up, if you would, this morning, please, to Matthew chapter 5, where we will continue in our series on the Sermon on the Mount that we started last week. Um, you know, I, I shared with you last week that, uh, or maybe I didn't, so I'll share it now, that this idea, growing up, I, I always was kind of taught that everything Jesus said he was saying to you and I, and uh, just like historically, that doesn't make a lot of sense, and in the context, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Jesus uh, came to the Jews, and he was talking to the Jews. He had a Jewish audience. There were a few places in the Gospels where he had a Gentile audience, but he is at this point not talking to Christians. Even guys like Peter and James and John, who were some of his inner circle at this point, they, they were following him, but they hadn't received the Holy Spirit yet. Uh, when he died, they, they didn't realize he was coming back to life, even though he had told them he was coming back to life. And they were grief-stricken over that. They were sad over it. They said uh, some of the disciples in, in Luke chapter 24, uh, after Jesus had died and been crucified and been raised from the dead, they were still mystified about it. And they said, man, we, we thought this guy was going to be the Savior. We thought this guy was going to be the Redeemer. And some people said he came back to life, but, you know, we don't know. And so, like, there was a lot of confusion still about who Jesus was. He had not, uh, the Holy Spirit hadn't been given yet. This is Peter from the Gospels is completely different from Peter in the book of Acts, where he's received the Holy Spirit and he preaches with boldness. But here we have Jesus in what is famously called the Sermon on the Mount. The actual text never calls it that. It's just something we call it so that we know what text we're talking about. But Jesus uh, had been preaching. He'd been preaching in a synagogue, a Jewish temple. And he had proclaimed salvation uh, of himself and said that he was God. And the people, most of them did not care for that very much. And took him outside and we're going to throw him off this little cliff and he passed through their midst, and he went to a different hillside, and he sat down, and the people who were still interested in hearing more about it sat down with him, and this is what he said to them. Now, what's interesting is this. Let me, sorry, I've skipped our, our tap. Here's what we have on tap today. Our theology is this. The law, that is the rules of the Bible, uh, are not sufficient for salvation. The law is not sufficient for salvation. Our application today is this. Put your confidence in the finished work of Christ and not in yourself. And our prayer today is this, God, help us to remember that salvation is about faith in the work you've done in Christ. The law cannot save us. The rules cannot save us. Uh, there's a lot of Christian teaching that would imply that the rules can save us, but law does not save us. Law does not make us holy. Obeying all the rules will not get you to heaven. You cannot be good enough to earn your own salvation. You can't do enough right things to get saved. You cannot uh, be abundantly kind and then just squeak your way into heaven, despite what a lot of people think. Uh, I've mentioned to you before that back in the 80s, when I was in middle school, I was part of an evangelism training program called, uh, oh man, it just went out of my head. Thank you. Yes, that one, Evangelism Explosion. EE, -E, yeah. So the one that came after that was Faith, and there was one before that, and there will always be other ones. But Evangelism Explosion, thank you, Micah. That's because it's his favorite technique. <laughs> if you're listening to this, the face he just made was a face of repugnance. Uh, but, uh, um, so evangelism explosion and, and we were, we would go out to people and we basically cold call people and we'd knock on apartment doors or whatever. And we'd try to share Christ with them. And one of the things that we would do is we'd say, if you died tonight, are you for sure you'd go to heaven? And many people would say, well, yeah, I think so. And then if you said, if you died tonight and you went to heaven and God said, why should I let you in? What would you say? And every time without fail, they gave us a list of the good things they've done or the bad things they've avoided 
well, I've never killed anybody. You know, I try to be good. I try to be nice. And so what they are doing without knowing it is they're saying law is what saves me. My, my performance is what saves me. But our performance is not what saves us. It is the work of Christ that saves us. And so that is very, very important to note because what's going on here in Matthew 5 is not Jesus' teaching to Christians on new laws. This is not Jesus telling Christians how to behave. This is Jesus talking to people who believed their works were their righteousness, and he's destroying that. In fact, let's just jump down, uh, just spoilers, let's just jump to the end of the movie, let's just jump to the plot twist, look at 548, very last verse of chapter 5. Jesus says this, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. You want to live by the law, you want to be righteous according to the law, you want to be righteous according to the world, uh, uh, you want to be righteous according to a world standard, you have to be as perfect as God. There you go. It's impossible. None of us are going to be as perfect as God. We, we need God. We need God. And so, catch this, if these are instructions, and it, they are not, I, I want to be really, really clear, these are not instructions to Christians. This is Jesus talking to Jews who thought that works was going to save them. And what he is doing is going, okay, if you really think works are going to save you, be perfect. You've got to be as perfect as God. The, the, the thing that Jesus is trying to bring his audience to is to a place where we go, well, man, we're in trouble then. He's trying to bring them to the place where they go, well, we can't save ourselves. And then he's going to go, right. And in chapter 7, he's going to be like, that's why I'm here. You know, like he's, he's leading them to this place where they can say, oh, man, I can't save myself. And once they go, man, I can't save myself, he goes, fantastic. I got great news for you. That's why I'm here. Like, right, he's, gonna, he's showing them himself as God. So pick up with me, if you would. The law is not sufficient for salvation. Pick up with me, if you would, in verse 17. This is Jesus talking to Jews. I, I cannot emphasize that enough. I need to emphasize that more. Jesus talking to Jews. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Here's why that's important. A lot of, a lot of Christians say, See, Jesus wants us to observe the law. Listen to me very, very carefully here. The Bible says this in James chapter 2 and Galatians chapter 5. If you want to observe any part of the law, you're under the whole law. You have to do it all. You don't get to pick and choose. And if you break any part of the law, you've broken the entire law. Righteousness is found in Christ alone. Jesus is talking to a group of Jews here. And, and remember, they had just tried to kill him. Because he stood up and he read a text from Isaiah and he said, I'm God. And they're like, whoa, whoa, this guy's going against our law. And Jesus is going, no, 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 I'm not going against the law. I'm here to fulfill the law. He's speaking to Jews who are afraid that what Jesus is doing is throwing out the law. And he goes, no, 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 I'm, not, I'm the fulfillment of the law. I, I'm not dismissing the law. I'm completing the law. That's what he's trying to do. He's talking to a Jewish audience. Guys, Listen, if we take this as a Christian text where Jesus is telling Christians, I want you to do the law, the end result, verse 48, is you've got to be as perfect as God. Aren't you grateful that you don't have to be as perfect as God, that God was perfect and purchased righteousness for us? That God removed our sin and poured out his righteousness on us in this exchange of faith on the cross, in the work of Jesus on the cross, that you and I... Ah, oh, man, anybody in here ever just been like, man, I'm a screw up. I've messed something up. You ever screw anything up in your life? You ever messed anything up in your life? Isn't it great to know that God hasn't? 
And what we get to do is rest in him. And people go, man, I know you. Listen, I just need to say this to you really quickly. If somebody ever comes to you and goes, I know you. I know your character. I know your past. I know your mistakes. You go, yeah, you do. Let me tell you about my perfect God who has bestowed on me his righteousness through faith in him. Uh, and, and you get to, you, instead of feeling guilt and shame, you get to boast and say, man, I am just so grateful. Yeah, you know my legacy. You know my background. You know my history. Isn't it great news then that my righteousness doesn't depend on me? My righteousness depends upon Christ. So Jesus is saying to these Jews here, he goes, look, don't think that I'm against the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now, listen, Jesus is talking about he is talking about his first coming. He's talking about his death and he's talking about his resurrection and his return here. All you've got to do is read the beginning part of Matthew, the first four chapters. He was born in Bethlehem, according to the law. Right? He went to Egypt, according to the law. He fled Egypt, according to the law. He was raised in Nazareth, according to the law. He died on the cross, according to the law. The, the people persecuted him and mocked him and crucified him, according to the law. He was raised on the third day, according to the law. Jesus is saying, guys, I'm not here to do away with the scripture. I'm here to bring it to completion. And he goes... And until the last day comes, I, you know, maybe you don't. Let me just say it this way. Isaiah 65 talks about the return of Christ, talks about the coming kingdom. Isaiah 64 talks about the return of Christ and the coming kingdom. Isaiah 11 talks about the return of Christ and the coming kingdom. Uh, we have that also in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, talking about the return of Christ. We have all these scriptures that have not yet been fulfilled that will be fulfilled on the, the second coming of Jesus. Jesus is saying to these Jews who know the Old Testament, listen, if you and I were a Gentile in the first century, we didn't know the scripture. We didn't know the Old Testament. We didn't know Isaiah. We weren't the Jews. Those weren't our holy scriptures. And, and so Jesus is telling these guys, he's like, look, I'm here to fulfill it. I'm here to be the Savior that you've longed for, that the Scriptures declared. And he goes, and until all of it gets wrapped up, the law won't disappear. You guys, you and I are still studying the Scripture that points to the return of Christ. We're still doing that. And so Jesus is talking to a Jewish audience, and he's going, look, you guys are worried that I'm here to undo the law. No, I'm here to complete it. And until heaven and earth pass away, which is Revelation 21. Until heaven and earth pass away, the law won't be done. Until, until the story's finished, the story's not finished. That's what he's saying. Okay? This is not him saying, live according to the law. This is him saying, I'm the fulfillment of the law. And, and until the new heavens and the new earth are established, Revelation 21, this law is still here to point you to me. It's not gone. He's the fulfillment of it. Anyway, this is confusing. I, I, I hope it's not. But come and talk to me, all right? I'd be happy to talk to you more about this. Verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And I tell you, unless your righteousness is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. Check this out. Three different groups. Least in the kingdom of heaven, great in the kingdom of heaven, and then also not in the kingdom of heaven. 
couple of things to note from this. Uh, first of all, John the Baptist, Jesus calls least in the kingdom of heaven. Okay? And so that kind of frames that idea for you. But look at what he says here. I really want to focus on verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness is greater than the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's the catch. In the first century Israel culture, Israeli culture, the scribes and the Pharisees were considered righteous. In fact, the scribes and the Pharisees absolutely considered themselves righteous. And they're walking around with their long robes, and they're walking around with their fancy hats and their little uh, headbands with boxes of scriptures in them. And, and I just need you to get this picture because it cracks me up every time. So these, these really devout Pharisees and scribes would walk around with headbands that had little boxes on them and little tiny scrolls of scripture in them. And some of them would wear really big boxes to look really holy. Now imagine this, like this was the way to say, look at how much scripture I know. Like, can you imagine people doing that in the 21st century? Like Christians walking around bragging to the other Christians about how many scriptures they know. And they've got this like big box, like your head, you know, you have to like wear a brace or something, you know? And like, it's, it's just, it's comical to me that like, I don't know how it starts, right? There's, there was probably a box you could buy at the synagogue or I don't know, but, but, but some dude went home and made a bigger one. And then he shows up at the synagogue the next day, and it's like, man, your, your box is bigger than mine. And he's like, well, you know, what can I say? You know, and then like, I imagine, like, everybody's going home. I got to make a bigger box. You know, they're doing neck exercises just so they can support this. It's ridiculous. The Bible literally says that they enlarge the, these headbands so that they can brag about it. They wear longer robes and make more tassels on their robes so that they can look more holy. So these, these scribes and Pharisees are walking around believing themselves to be righteous. And here's the kicker. Most of the people around them think, oh, those are the righteous guys. And Jesus shows up and says, unless you're more righteous than these guys, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. What did Jesus do in that moment? He flipped the standard. Because these scribes and Pharisees are going, we're obeying the law. We're doing all the rules. And because we're doing the rules, we're righteous. And Jesus goes, by the way, these guys will never see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus just ripped away the Jewish standard of righteousness. You see that? The the scribes and the Pharisees are going, we're righteous. Look at how holy we are. And Jesus goes, no, no, no. These guys will never see the kingdom of heaven. These guys are not upholding the law. And then he explains that to them. That's what's happening here in the next text. He's explaining it to them. Look at verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders is liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, is in danger of the hellfire. Check this out. Remember what I told you a minute ago? We'd go knock on doors. We'd ask people, are you for sure you go to heaven? Yeah, yeah, I think I'll go to heaven. I've never murdered anybody. Jesus goes, okay, you're saying, yeah, don't kill anybody. That's the law. Don't kill anybody. Ten commandments, right? Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. Uh, don't kill anybody. He goes, I'm going to tell you something. He goes, everyone who, sa- who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother is liable to the council. Whoever calls his brother a fool deserves hellfire. Without being too pointed here, anybody ever insult somebody? <laughs> anybody ever said, you idiot? Like maybe driving to church this morning when they ran the stoplight. You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? It, People who don't know how to use blinkers properly, you know, right? I'm not looking at any of you in particular. Here, I'll do this. You know? Anybody who who feels that, like, you know, you're 40 yards back from the yellow, but if you just speed up, it makes it okay, you know? 
right? You're like, man, you idiot. According to this, you deserve hell. I just want to be really clear here. That's not what we believe. What is Jesus doing? What is Jesus doing? He's saying, he just finished saying, unless you're more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. And he goes, great, the scribes and the Pharisees haven't murdered. But you know what the scribes and the Pharisees did regularly? They were racist against their own people. And they would say, you fool, you don't understand. You don't comprehend the law like we do. You're not as smart as we do. And what Jesus is doing, I need you to picture this because it's hilarious. He has this audience of people who are going, whoa, you mean that's not righteousness? And the scribes and the Pharisees are over here squirming. Because he's going, look, unless you're more righteous than these guys, like he's, there's a group in his audience. Unless you're more righteous than them, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. They say, don't murder. That's great. But if you call your brothers fool, you deserve hell. And now the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, hey, I mean, come on now. I mean, I'm, you know, like, I mean, like, and these guys are going, that's awesome. He's shifting the perspective. He's shifting the standard. He's saying to them, you think it's about the works. It's not about the works, though. Look at this next thing here. He says it, he says it this way in verse, uh, man, I just bought readers last week, and I forgot to bring them over this morning. When my eyes are tired, anybody else? Man, when my eyes are tired, they just don't focus. We'll do it like this. There we go. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away from you. For it's better that one of your members, uh, it is better to lose one of your members than have your whole body thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away from you. For it is better to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. This right here should tell us that he's not talking to Christians. There is no danger of hell for the believer. Those of us who are in Christ, Romans 8.1 says we are no longer condemned. There is no danger of hell for the believer. But Jesus is talking to Jews who have not yet put their faith in him. He is talking to people who don't yet believe in him. And he says, listen, you've heard that it was said don't commit adultery. The Pharisees are going, we haven't done that. And he goes, yeah, but if you ever looked at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery. What he's just done is shamed the Pharisees. What he's just done is condemned the righteous, the so-called, for those of you who are listening audio, I'm doing quote fingers, the so-called righteous Pharisees. He is, he's shaming them, and he goes, yeah. He goes, but look, you're just as guilty. Keep in mind here that what Jesus is doing is he is showing the impossible standard of the law for righteousness, and he is making everyone guilty. Why is Jesus making everyone guilty? So that righteousness will not be based on our works, but based on him. Everyone, everyone's guilty, even the so-called righteous Pharisees. Everyone's guilty. Everyone's a sinner. And then look at what he says. Catch this. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away from you, for it's better that one of your members perish than your whole body be cut and thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away from you. Uh, so, so here's this idea, right? And, and I've heard this taught, and I taught it wrongly for many, many years. I taught this as a Christian text on how Christians should handle sin. But this is not what's happening here because the penalty for someone who doesn't do this correctly, the penalty is hell. So this is, a, this is about understanding Jesus. 
What he's saying is, if there is something that is keeping you from comprehending Jesus, if there is something that is keeping you from coming to the truth of the kingdom, rip it out from you, cut it off from you, so that you can come into heaven. So that, so, so the, that thing that is keeping you from receiving the gospel, that thing that is keeping you from understanding the truth, that thing that is... So Pharisees... Man, what are, they, what are they resting on? They're resting on their own righteousness. And he goes, rip that from you. Cut it from you. Anything that hinders you, cut it from you. I once wrote a poem called, I Need a Magic Axe. Uh, it wasn't about this, but the idea uh, was similar. And the, in, the, in, in the poem, the guy never wanted to feel things again. It was a really dark kind of thing. And he cut off one of his hands, but now he's in trouble because he doesn't know how to cut off the other hand, right? He needs a magic axe. And, and, and so... so this is not a Christian text. We'd all end up, you know, with no feet and no hands and no eyes and rolling around. We, uh, it'd be like uh, to the pain at the end of uh, the Princess Bride, if you're familiar with that movie. You know, uh, you know, we no ears, no nose, no. Uh, anyway, like what he's doing is Christ is stripping them of their standard. He's going, look, you, you think your righteousness depends on your works. You think your righteousness depends on what you've done. He goes, it doesn't. He goes, all of you are guilty. He, he is, think about what Jesus is doing. He's not getting up and going, hey, here's the three, the Pharisees are wrong. Here's the actual three steps for righteousness. Go and do it. What he's doing is saying the Pharisee's standard of righteousness is wrong. None of you can be righteous by the law. And he's bringing them to that place. Why? So they'll go, what the heck then do we do? And he goes, believe me. Put your trust in me. He's bringing them to that place where there is no hope. Why? So he can go, hi, it's me. <laughs> Although he probably wouldn't have to have like a higher kind of lilting voice. It's like he's, you know, make the thunder kind of shake. You know, he'd be like, hi, you know, the earth shaking. And he's like, it's me. You know, I don't know. But like Jesus is like walking on water, causing the mountains to shake. Stars are falling from the sky. The dead are coming to life. He's like, hello, <laughs> right here righteousness in me for you you know like that's what he's doing he's bringing them to the brink of hopelessness in the law so they'll go what do we need and he goes you need me guys i i uh, if you are in christ you are free from the law as a standard of righteousness you are free from the law and yet so many of us wake up day in and day out discouraged and depressed and heavy set because of all the ways we failed. Some of us are so twisted up in our mind. We are thinking about our failures from fourth grade. And some of you are still in fourth grade or just came out of fourth grade, but some of us have left fourth grade 35 years ago, you know? And, and we're still thinking about that screw-up we did, that one thing that we said wrong that one time. I, I promise you, I promise you that... Uh, I am still thinking about the time that I walked up to you and said, hey, how you doing? And you're like, oh, I'm good. And I'm like, well, great. Glad to hear it. And just walked off. Like, I'm bad at small talk. I don't know how to end those conversations well, so I just walk away. I, I, I'm, Pierce is going, yes, Ryan does that all the time. He's nodding over there. I, I, I just, I'm still feeling horrible because I'm thinking they probably think I hate them. I just don't know how to talk. This right here on the stage, easy for me. Talking to you over there in the corner scares me, all right? I'm just not a people guy. It takes me some practice. Like, I, I'm pretty comfortable with these guys because we share a house, you know? Like, this is my family. Uh, Micah and I have known each other 19 years. Well, 
uh, we've known each other, yeah, a little over 19 years, but we really became friends 18 and a half years ago. Like we met, and then like six months later, we became friends. But not that there was anything wrong with him, it just <laughs> took a while for us to connect. It was his shell necklace, he was too cool for me, you know. Micah was saying at the beginning that, you know, you're kind of a rock star when you're at a camp. I, I did a lot of camps, and I was never a rock star. <laughs> I was always the goofy guy, the weird guy that they brought in. Uh, the thing that people remember most is I did have, I did have a guy. I was preaching once on accountability and uh, uh, the importance of community. And I did have a guy come up on the stage, a friend of mine, and slap me as hard as he could uh, as an illustration. And I will tell you, he slapped me as hard as he could. And uh, everything went black for about half a second. But those kids remember that illustration. <laughs> So, so here we've got Jesus talking to a group of Jews. He's explaining to them the deficiencies of the law. He's explaining to them that their standard of righteousness is not the standard of righteousness, that the scribes and the Pharisees will not see the kingdom of heaven. And I would love to go through all of this in depth, but we do not have that kind of time. So if you would, please jump down to... So he, he said in 21, you've heard that it was said. He said in 27, you've heard that it was said. He says in verse 31, it has also been said. He says in 30. Again, you've heard that it was said. And he says in verse 38, uh, again, you've heard that it was said. Now jump down with me into verse 43. Now you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now this is interesting, and here's why it's interesting. Okay? You shall love your neighbor but hate your enemy. Here's why it's interesting. Every other you've heard it was said is a direct quote from the Old Testament. Every other one. This is not. You have heard that it was said, you shall... Uh, love your neighbor. That is from Leviticus 19. The first half is a direct quote. And hate your enemy. That is not part of the Leviticus 19 quote. This was a Jewish tradition. This was something that the Pharisees had kind of introduced. Now remember back in 20, in verse 20, Jesus said, the Pharisees, their standard of righteousness, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. And so Here's what the scripture says. I want to show you more clearly. Here's what the scripture says. I want to show you more clearly. Here's what the scripture says. I want to show you more clearly. Here's what the scripture says. I want to show you more clearly. Here's what the Pharisees say. I want to show you more clearly. This is what Jesus is doing. And look at what he says. Let's read the whole text here, verse, uh, beginning in verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, re what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So here's the standard that he's raising up. He's going, look, you've heard that the Old Testament, he didn't call it the Old Testament for them, it was just the law and the prophets. You've heard that the scripture says this, I want to be more clear about it. You've heard that the scripture says this, I want to be more clear about it. And he does that six times, six or seven, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, five times. And then here he says, you've heard that it was said, and now he's going to quote part scripture, part what the Pharisees are saying, and he's going, even this is wrong. He's like, you need to, you, you need to love one another. Love those who are persecuting you. Love those who are your enemies. Love those who are against you. He goes, listen, tax collectors and Gentiles, this is another clue that he is not talking to Christians, that he's talking to Jews. The Jews hated the tax collectors. Do you know why? Because the entire world at this point is under Roman control. And the Roman government 
had uh, kings and leaders. So the, the Roman government there in Rome had a king, and they would send out other people who would be kings over other nations. Israel, this is history now that you don't have to care about. Israel said, we refuse to have any king but God. And so to get around that, Rome said, well, we'll just call your guy a governor. <laughs> so Israel goes, cool, we'll take a governor. <laughs> so Rome still had a governor over the land of Israel. And then the, what the governor would do is find local people, local Jews, who would be tax collectors for the Roman government. And they're responsible for collecting taxes. And the Jews felt betrayed. You're robbing us to pay the Romans who are our masters. How do the Jews feel about tax collectors? They hated them. Here's another thing. How do the Jews feel about Gentiles? By the way, biblical language, anyone who is not a Jew is a Gentile. How do the Jews feel about Gentiles? Well, the Roman government, all Gentiles, they hated them. They hated them. You and I, unless you are from Jewish background in here, you and I are Gentiles. <laughs> this is not talking to a gent group of Gentiles. It's talking to a group of Jews. And what Jesus says is like, look, even tax collectors know how to be nice to people who are nice to them. And you're going, oh, man, those low and dirty tax collectors. Like, that's the heart of the Jew, right? And he goes, even Gentiles are nice to the people who are nice to them. And the Jews are like, what? And Jesus goes, you got it. Like, it, it's offensive to the Jews because they think they're racist is really what it boils down to uh, it, here in, in first century. They're, they're, the Jews in the first century hated everybody else. It would be one of the biggest battles that would be faced by the church in the early, uh, in the early part of the church because there would be Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians who didn't get along because they believed they couldn't get along. And God had to work on that. But here, Jesus is talking to these guys. He goes, look, you don't like the tax collectors, but they know how to be nice to people who are nice to them. You don't like the Gentiles, but they know how to be nice to people who are nice to them. He goes, here's what I'm telling you to do. Be nice to the people who aren't nice to you. Be nice to the people who hate you. Now, what we do typically, and what I did for the first 16 years of preaching this text, is I would stand up in front of you guys and I would say, look at what Jesus is telling us as Christians to do. Love the people who don't love us back. But that is not what he is doing here. There's some application, sure. We should love the brethren. We should love people. We should show people the kindness of Christ. But what Jesus is doing here is he's saying this. He's saying to these Jews, you need to love the people who are persecuting you. Love the Romans. Love the tax collectors. Love the people who are your enemies. And they're going, man, that's impossible. And he goes, look, you want the law as a standard of righteousness? Verse 48, be perfect as God is perfect. And they're going, oh, how? And he goes, you can't. You can't be as perfect as God is. And so then they're left going, so what do we do? Now, all of chapter 6, and we're going to spend three weeks in chapter 6, but uh, all of, no, 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 one week in chapter 6, sorry. Uh, and then we're going to get to chapter 7 and spend three weeks in chapter 7. But it, he's, from verse 20, from verse 20, unless you are more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. From verse 20 all the way through the end of chapter 6 is him destroying the scribes and the Pharisees, saying that they're not actually righteous. And then in chapter 7, he's going to offer them something else. Spoiler alert. In chapter 7, where he says, ask, seek, and knock for anyone who asks, uh, what does he say? Here, let's look at it. 
uh, verse 7, chapter 7, verse 7, and we'll come to this in a couple of weeks. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. Uh, and, and so here's what's beautiful. Here's what's beautiful about this. He's talking here about the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's talking here about the grace of God. And he's taken all of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6 to say, you can't be righteous on your own. And the people are going, where then do we get this righteousness? And he goes, ask. And I'll give it to you. Seek, and you'll find it. Knock, and the door's open. I'm here to give you this righteousness. So chapters 5 and 6, he's presenting the problem. You can't be righteous on your own. You can't work your way into salvation. You can't work your way into heaven. You can't work your way into a place of holiness. In chapter 7, he says, and I'm the answer. I'm the solution. This is how we must read Matthews 5, 6, and 7. That Jesus is addressing Jews about the problem of self-made righteousness and saying, look, you're not going to be good enough on your own. Listen, this is Ryan talking now to you guys. I've been talking the whole time, but sometimes I say Jesus said or Paul said, this is me talking to you. If you're in here and you think, man, I got it. If I can just be a little bit better than I was last week, if I can just read my Bible a little bit more, if I can just do a few more things to be a little more righteous, if I can just do a couple of more things to, to make people a little bit, to, to just be better, then maybe God will like me this week. If, if that's your mindset, I, I just want to do two things really quickly. One, if, if that is true, if it's our works that bring us righteousness, if that's true, by the way, it's not, but if that's true, then the requirement for you is not be a little better. The requirement for you is be as perfect as God. If it's true that your works are going to make you holy and save you and make you clean, if it's true that you being a little bit better is what's going to fix it, then the scripture says, no, 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 you got to be as perfect as God. Now, if that freaks you out a little bit and you're going, oh, man, how do I be perfect? Here's the answer. You can't. But Christ was and is, and there is righteousness in him. Rest in Christ. And, and I did what I did last week, and I've forgotten uh, to get to our application again because I've gotten really excited. But our application is put your confidence in the finished work of Christ and not yourself. Put your confidence in the finished work of Christ and not yourself. Here's, here's the flip side of that. If you'll quit putting your confidence in yourself, you also get to quit being disappointed in yourself. Right? Isn't that, isn't that right? <laughs> because if your confidence is all in yourself, then every time you screw up, you're like, oh, man, I screwed up again. I'm such a screw up. But if your confidence isn't in yourself, it's in Jesus, then you go, man, screwed up this week. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Thank you that you're perfect. Thank you that righteousness is found in you. Thank you that you're loving. Thank you that you're graceful, right? Our, we, we, we're free from shame. We're free from condemnation. We're free from the law saying, here's all the ways you screwed up. And we're able to say, look, people, people can, for the rest of our lives, listen, I've burned bridges. I've buried relationships in the desert with a bullet hole in their head, you know, a shallow grave kind of thing. I, I, have, I, have, I have been caustic, and I have been offensive, and I have wounded people unintentionally, and I get it, and there are earthly consequences for it. But before the throne of God, because of the righteousness of Christ, I'm still righteous. 
And so for all the things that I've done wrong and I can seek to make amends for, I don't have to make amends with God because Christ has made amends for me. And so, yes, I might feel lost for some of the relationships I've hurt. But I get to stand before God forgiven because of the righteousness of Christ. Because my righteousness does not now, nor has it ever, depended upon me. And that brings us to our prayer. God, help us to remember that salvation, and you can put in parentheses there, righteousness, is about faith in the work you've done in Christ. Help us to remember that salvation is about faith in the work you've done in Christ. Your righteousness is not a matter of your works. Your righteousness is a matter of the work of Jesus. Rest in Christ. If you would right now, would you just take a moment? Ask that, ask that God would help you to remember that salvation is about the work of Jesus, not about your work. God, we know and believe that you sent Jesus for us. That you loved us enough to send Christ to die for us, to bear our sins. God, to remove what was wicked in us and to give us his righteousness. We know that according to scripture, he came to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, that salvation came to the Jew and then to the Gentile. We know Lord, that no work of the law can save us. We know that no work of the law can make us righteous or holy. We praise you, God. We praise you for the cross. We praise you for the exalted Savior, Jesus Christ, God Almighty, who laid down his life and took it up again by his own power. We thank you, God, that righteousness is a matter of your work, what you've done through Jesus. We pray that you'd set our confidence on that. God, that we would quit carrying the guilt and the shame of our previous failures. God, that we'd quit carrying the guilt and the shame of our failures that we're going to possibly do tomorrow. And that we would rest in the risen Savior. That our declaration would be that you have saved us. That you have made us whole. That you have made us righteous. That you have called us sons and daughters. That though our skins, sins were as scarlet, they are as white as snow. And God, if there's anyone in here today or listening to this podcast today 
that has never come to the place where they put their faith in you. I pray, God, that today would be the day that they would recognize the hopelessness of their own works for righteousness. And that today would be the day where they would say, Lord God, we need you. Lord God, I need you. That today would be the day of their salvation, that in the day of their faith. It's in the precious and holy, the only name of Christ that we pray. Amen.